Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, the podcast on how technologies are healing healthcare around the globe. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and today's episode will be a little different from the usual ones. I decided to prepare a recap of some highlights from the Exponential Medicine Conference, which took place in San Diego in the beginning of November. Exponential Medicine is organized by Singularity University, the global leader in thinking far beyond innovation, driving forward futuristic ideas in healthcare and showcasing examples of high-tech solutions the majority of healthcare can only dream about. The conference was live streamed and recorded, so you can still see all the presentations on Singularity University webpage and YouTube channel. I will present only a few thoughts that stuck with me. What I will focus on today is a recap and comment on presented discussions and solutions for interoperability, practical use of AI in enterprises, some bold ideas about the future of digital innovation by Vinod Kosla, and lucid thoughts regarding the affordability of novel digital health solutions and how we should reframe our thinking about management and leadership to truly advance global health. If you've ever been in more than one healthcare institution as a patient, you might know the frustration caused by the lack of connectivity among databases and electronic healthcare record systems. Interoperability has been a pain point for many years, yet it seems we're still quite far from solving it. This is how Shannon Sartin, the executive director of the U.S. Department of Digital Health Service at Health and Human Services, summarized the issue around interoperability. When I first got brought into this conversation at CMS around electronic health records and interoperability, I kind of laughed um, because it is... From my perspective, interoperability is um, very much a buzzword. It's a thing that we talk about, but when we actually start to define solutions, we have to get really deep into what it is that we're actually trying to do. I don't think anybody in this room just wants all the data to be free-flowing everywhere. They actually want it in support of something that they're trying to achieve. And so when we start to solve interoperability, you're actually solving a, a potentially unsolvable problem, right? And one of the things that we've really focused on at CMS is how can we use APIs to get more data out the door and into the hands of people who can use it. Um, And I think, you know, we talk about AI and machine learning and these opportunities for innovation a lot, but I really believe that we have to walk before we can run. Um, I interact with health systems or payers who can't even build an API. Like, we can't even move to something to an internet-based exchange of data. I have no idea how you're going to be able to employ the blockchain or machine learning or any of the fancy technologies that we want to uh, if we can't get to that point. Shannon Sarton believes that the pressure on vendors to release the data will have to come from healthcare institutions and patients. All of our data is now locked in silos. And nobody knows how to actually get it out. And my team spends infinite calories. We do infinite brain damage trying to think about how do you get it out. And there's a lot of different ways to solve that problem. And there likely needs to be some form of regulation that involves not an explicit how-to, but explicit outcomes of what we're expecting and flexibility to be able to adopt to new standards. Um, But it also involves, I think, the health systems negotiating the right contracts with their electronic health record providers. It comes back to hospital and health system administrators pushing back and saying, I do not like what I have right now. 
and using their market share to really push on those EHRs to liberate that data and create data liquidity. Um, and it even falls back down to us as patients being willing to ask for our data. And without that, nothing's going to change. It won't go anywhere. Luckily, many entrepreneurs are looking for ways to enable patients to have unified personal healthcare records. The problem is complex on many levels. Lonnie Ray, the founder of healthcare startup Medal, which is working on gathering patient data from various sources such as faxes, paper and EHR systems, described some stunning statistics. We've spent $48 billion on systems that were supposed to exchange data. That was the whole point. 71% of providers say that we will not attain this by 2020. We've been left with fragmented records, over 130 different medical record systems on the market, each one of which has their own solution for data exchange, and a variety of formats that can't even be exchanged within their own category. So when it matters most, we end up resorting to paper, phone, and fax. Um, some estimates early on uh, were estimating about 15 billion faxes a year. We now know just four companies that are exceeding that with just them alone. Um, this number, at least 30 billion a year, small hospitals are getting 30,000 pages every day. That 25% of everything we're spending is administrative overhead, and a third of all of our spending is, is patient harm. One in four Americans has multiple chronic diseases that require ongoing treatment, and their records are stored in 19 or more places. Uh, studies estimate that they have over 200 pages. That, that number is absurdly low. It's probably closer to 3,000 to 6,000. Johns Hopkins University estimates that each year a quarter of a million people die of medical error, including delay diagnosis, misdiagnosis, um, and medication interaction, which makes it, as one of my co-presenters mentioned, the third leading cause of death in the United States. This was a lot of very specific data, so let's listen to it again. We've spent $48 billion on systems that were supposed to exchange data. That was the whole point. 71% of providers say that we will not attain this by 2020. We've been left with fragmented records, over 130 different medical record systems on the market, each one of which has their own solution for data exchange. So when it matters most, we end up resorting to paper, phone, and fax. Small hospitals are getting 30,000 pages every day. That 25% of everything we're spending is administrative overhead, and a third of all of our spending is, is patient harm. One in four Americans has multiple chronic diseases that require ongoing treatment, and their records are stored in 19 or more places, uh, studies estimate that they have over 200 pages. That, that number is absurdly low. It's probably closer to 3,000 to 6,000. Johns Hopkins University estimates that each year a quarter of a million people die of medical error, including delay diagnosis, misdiagnosis, um, and medication interaction, which makes it, as one of my co-presenters mentioned, the third leading cause of death in the United States. Lonnie Ray is a doctor by background and went from medical practice to entrepreneurships to have a bigger impact on a larger scale in medicine. Due to her personal severe injuries and illness, she dug into how to increase connectivity of personal patient data to already known studies. The fact is that the amount of scientific research is increasing with such speed that it's impossible for any specialist to be on top of all the knowledge. There's a need for better data management and a common data language. So what we need is the rise of a common language that allows us to communicate effectively across these systems, um, which will be demanded. Uh, medicine has gone from a transactional field, one where we pay for services, to one that we're managing lifelong wellness. So we're no longer detecting someone who's in liver failure. We're detecting someone who has a risk of developing liver failure or has a propensity to develop kidney disease. 
And so what we need is tools that are common language that allow us to speak this new language of medicine together. Lack of data standards is not something many healthcare specialists wouldn't already be aware of. The best way to cure it would be to start building on open standards and ensure patient data is separate from apps and IT systems. However, it will be a long way before we get there due to vendor-locked-in systems and the impossible bureaucracy entangled around medical data. Many potentials for improved efficiency and process optimization is seen in artificial intelligence. AI already surpassed at the idea stage and is seen in real-life implementations. Rajiv Renenki from Anton Healthcare Insurance described the applications of AI in enterprise that are already very real. So we see three sort of main um, applications of AI in the enterprise today. One around process automation, which is really automating knowledge worker-based processes wherever there's an intersection of data with uh, policies and people making decisions, automating that through AI-based systems. So that's, that's one application. 47% of the, the research that we did of companies that have, have invested in that space are, are working in this area. Second is around generation of insights, uh, looking at structured data, unstructured data, voice, image, more, more so now, and turning those, those insights into actions and learnings for us. And then finally, uh, the most promising area is around uh, personalized engagement. Uh, you've heard quite a bit about today about uh, N equals one type of models and precision medicine uh, based on our personal health profile. About 16% emerging uh, in that space. So process automation, a fine company named Augmetics. Uh, if you, uh, anyone here remember Google Glass? Uh, so infamous failed experiments sort of in the consumer space, uh, but really sort of good application in the, in the clinical area where... Uh, doctors, clinicians are using Google Glass, wearing that to, uh, while seeing patients, and, that, and the notes are being transcribed automatically, and intelligence is being translated from that into the EMRs to close the loop. So natural language processing and other AI technologies are being used to, to do that. So, and um, insights, uh, Atomwise, um, a very interesting company. Uh, they're speeding up uh, drug discovery by really using uh, complex uh, convolutional neural networks. Uh, to get through 10 to 20 million compounds per day. That's basically looking at all of the, the millions of permutations and combinations and very quickly turning those into insights, uh, so, so therefore uh, greatly speeding up the, uh, the drug discovery process. Personalized engagement, one, uh, again, going back to this, this notion of N equals one, uh, it's fast gaining traction, particularly with uh, uh, voice-generated sort of systems that are out there today that... Uh, have the AI brain, so the Alexa to the Echo combination or the Google Home to, to the Google uh, Deep Brain combinations. And, um, you know, a practical example of that is I've got a, an emergency condition. I want to go see a doctor. Um, Alexa, what should I do about that? Go uh, find the nearest hospital, uh, tailor that based on my, my profile, uh, and make the recommendation on, um, you know, whether I should go to that ER or not, and if so, make the appointment. And you can sort of uh, think about the exponential increase in the sophistication of that capability over time and how it's going to you know, improve all of our lives and make it much more convenient. Individually, uh, process automation insights and engagement are all interesting. But when you loop it together and you combine it, and you know, so if you automate a process and you continually learn from it and you, and you get the insights from it and turn that into engagement, then you're, you're able to start to create, I think, a seamless sort of continuum of solutions for, for healthcare. And uh, we at Anthem, here are some of the things that we're doing, uh, for example. We've got uh, a project underway sort of to collect uh, genomic data with the user's permission, with our members' permission, 
and start to tailor some insights around that. With that, we can also tailor how we might match you up to providers. So beyond just the normal uh, things that we match on, um, like cost and quality and availability, uh, it also factors into, into things like uh, bedside manner and other uh, attributes uh, that allow us to match our patients more effectively with our members and consumers. Uh, one of my favorites is the, is the selfie to health. Uh, so click a selfie. Um, and uh, based on sort of facial recognition technology, uh, we're working on tailoring some, some medical content news that kind of flashes up based on that selfie. All of these are examples of uh, personalization and really deep N equals one type engagement. But the, the practical reality is that uh, our NPS ratings rivaled out of cable companies. Uh, nothing wrong with cable providers, but uh, we like to be a little bit higher than that. Uh, and an example of that is, uh, you know, simple things trip us up today. So most of our interactions happen on the phone. And while um, uh, ostensibly the chief digital officer at Anthem, 95% uh, of all of our interactions happen on the phone. Uh, and there are simple things like, um, you know, a, a, a one of our members wants to go see a provider and her primary care physician refer her to an out-of-network provider. And uh, consequently, she was stuck with, uh, with a much higher bill than she had planned for. And as a result, uh, not very happy with Anthem. So you can think of a, of a million ways to, to make this experience better, including create a, you know, a chatbot that says, hey, you know, text, send out a text message, say, you know, before you go to the provider, here's a, an alternative location. Uh, better yet, have a virtual dialogue that may, may, may avoid that visit altogether. And so all of these problems can be solved by adopting an AI-first mindset and an AI-for-good mindset. Rajiv also mentioned the problem of bias in AI. Artificial intelligence engines are only as good as the data we feed it, with the inaccurate data come inaccurate and even dangerous recommendations. If we want to go beyond the potentials of AI in process optimization, this is what you can learn from Vinod Kosla. He presented how once big data kicks in with full power, AI will prevent or reduce bias in healthcare treatment. As he emphasized, today medicine is based on opinions and treatment outcomes are too dependent on patients' luck and the specialists we get instead of best practices. Here are some of his crucial thoughts. Most of what we deal with in medicine is opinions. Good opinions based on the best experience we have. When things don't work, we improve them. But each expert has their own opinion. And one of my big beefs with medicine today is the treatment you get is based on the physician you get, not on the disease or, or problem you have. We have very good practice of medicine. It's improving every single day, but we need the science of medicine. And the science of medicine is a quantum leap above. And almost nothing, almost, not 100%, but most of what med school students are learning today will be irrelevant to the science of medicine in 15, 20 years, maybe 25 but we will be upskilling people, we'll be upskilling physicians, nurses, leading to pretty large changes. I think within 10 to 15 years, almost every major specialty in medicine, I looked at this and I have a three-year-old paper I'll refer you to if you Google 20% doctor included, uh, 
I actually, in the appendix, define the specialties and say what will happen. Almost certainly, 80% of what a psychiatrist does can be done by an AI psychiatrist bionic assistant. Same is true of an oncologist. If anybody wants to start an onco AI oncologist company, call me. Uh, same is true of cardiology and other specialties. By the way, primary care is going to be the most important specialty in medicine in not being a specialty and being more integrative because the expertise in each of these areas will, will come to the primary care physician who won't need that detailed expertise. I think within 10 to 15 years, almost every major specialty in medicine, I looked at this and I have a three-year-old paper I'll refer you to if you Google 20% doctor included. Uh, I actually, in the appendix, define the specialties and say what will happen. Almost certainly, 80% of what a psychiatrist does can be done by an AI psychiatrist bionic assistant. Same is true of an oncologist. If anybody wants to start an onco AI oncologist company, call me. Uh, same is true of cardiology and other specialties. One of the speakers that I liked most at the Exponential Medicine Conference was the Executive Director for the People-Centered Internet Coalition, Dr. David Bray. He spoke in the closing session on democratizing technology for global health. New inventions are great, but how affordable are they? Are they bringing better health or more than that, widen the gap between the rich and the poor? Bray spoke about the society we want to live in and what we need to take into account in terms of management and leadership and rethinking the way we think to get there. Human beings do wonderful things, we do mediocre things, and we also do less than great things too. That's, that's who we are as a species. And in fact, some of those traits that we have stem back to how evolution through natural selection pressures have picked for certain traits that were well adapted when it was either us living a nomadic lifestyle or a lifestyle in which it was only 80 of us and we were mainly close family members. For most of the history of our species, we lived in where you only came across 80 people in your entire lifespan and they were your immediate family members. It was rare to come across anybody else that was different. Obviously, in the last 2,000, 3,000 years, that's been a change, but that's relatively short relative to the evolution of our species. And so we are maladapted for this world in which we're going to live in urban areas that are 10 million or more people. We're maladapted for a world in which we're going from 7.6 billion people on the planet to 8 billion people on the planet in less than four years. We have to figure out how we can build empathy towards the entire planet as a species. And that gets to the questions about us versus them demographics, the fact that can we actually do that? And so with the people-centered internet, it's trying to figure out how we can make that internet a force for good to try and uplift everybody, but also at the same time recognize that as we democratize technologies, specifically in the healthcare arena, I'm looking forward to what personalized medicine can do, but personalized medicine can also be personalized poison. And are we prepared for that? Are we prepared for the institutions that will detect that? Are we prepared for disruptions that will occur? And the final thought that I'll leave you with we may be living in the middle of history in which we are transitioning from organizing by geography to organizing by networks. And what do I mean by that? Well, when you organize by geography, there's a bell curve of what the beliefs are in that area. You may not like where the median falls, but there's at least a bell curve and there's extremes on either side. 
However, when you begin to organize by networks, which is what the internet allows us to do, what the web allows us to do, what social media allows us to do, the challenge is, is when like begins to form with like, you get the reverse of a bell curve. You get an amplification of the extremes and the loss of the middle. And so we may be living in this era in which we're trying to figure out, can we coexist as pluralistic open societies in this rapidly changing world that's moving from geography to networks? And if so, how do we bring the rest of the world along, not just for healthcare, but for education, for well-being, and everything else? Uh, I do think for the developed world, the further we get away from World War II, the more we are pulling ourselves apart. We have lost that specter that says, look, we may disagree on these fringes of this political belief or this political belief, but we all agree we don't want another world war. I think we've lost that. And in the end, we're pulling ourselves apart. Uh, it's become, it's a shift from a culture of we to becoming a culture of me, which may be amplified by technology, which is if you don't think as I do, then I'm not going to talk to you. We've lost the perspective of how can technology amplify communities versus just empower the individual. And so while certainly there, that can happen, I don't want to be too pessimistic. I'm generally an optimistic at heart. I think it's going to take all of us in the room to recognize we are the Calvary. Nobody else is coming. If we don't step up, don't be surprised if five or ten years from now we look back at it and things are worse off as opposed to better off. Because if we don't step up, I'm not sure anyone else will. And, and that's something to think about. Well, hopefully this is being live-streamed directly into Washington, D.C., into the State Department. Oh, but you give too much credit. And that's just it. I don't, I mean, and I say this as one who has served in public service and has also been in the private sector. We should not hinge our hopes on that. If we do, then woe be it unto us. Because I think, if anything, this is an era in which we have learned helplessness. In which it's, it is, we have learned that it is okay to be angry and rail and be frustrated and think that just by getting angry, we solve something. That does nothing other than it just creates more anger. But what we really need to do is actually stop having learned helplessness and actually say, wait, if nobody else steps forward and does something, don't be surprised if anyone else does. And I point out, one of the things I like to say to people is we need to distinguish between management and leadership. Management is when you meet expectations, whether they be from your boss, your patients, your reports, your peers, the public. To some degree, we have to meet expectations. But in this era of exponential change that everyone's pointed out, if all we do is meet expectations, we're going to fall further behind. And there are times when those expectations are wrong. That gets to leadership. Leadership comes from the Greek word lead, some say. And actually, it means to be sent unto death. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with leadership? Well, back in ancient Greece, the ones that carried the flag in front of the army were called the leets. And that's all well and good until one army meets another army, and who's the first to die? The leets, the flag bearers. So we have to be willing to risk things. We have to be willing to risk getting either mud thrown our way, or ridicule, or people saying it's never going to work, that's impossible, or even asking, why are you doing that? If we believe in the world in which we are uplifting everyone, if we don't step forward and do that, even if that means we're going to have people that are going to shun in the wrong light or people are going to split in political dimensions or it's going to challenge the existing, like you said, pharma mafia. If we don't step forward and do that, no one else is. It has to be us. This was the 22nd episode of Faces of Digital Health. As I mentioned in the beginning, this is really only a glimpse of the Exponential Medicine Conference. I'm happy to say that quite a few speakers who presented at Exponential Medicine were already guests of this podcast. They are 
Professor Walter Greenleaf from Stanford University, the global lead in the use of VR in clinical setting, and you can listen to him in episode 11. Rasu Shrestha, the Chief Information Officer at UPMC, also spoke at South by Southwest. And if you listen to episode 6 of this podcast, you can hear his talk from there. There's also Ashisha Trija, who was in the podcast last year when the podcast was still named Medicine Today on Digital Health. And he, as well as Rasu Shrestha, talked about the interoperability in healthcare and the connectivity between large medical institutions in the US. This is presented in episode 20. Two more important speakers are the entrepreneurs Shauna Butler, the guest in episode 16, and then there's Shafi Ahmed, the VR surgeon, who talked to me for the episode 18 about how can Bolivia become the global digital health role model, and of course the VR implementations in healthcare for the purpose of education and broader availability of knowledge among healthcare professionals. Search for the episodes wherever you get your podcast or find the links to them in the show notes.